0: This week on Seizing Life, we revisit some of our favorite episodes from the past year. We begin with an excerpt from our conversation with CURE's founder, Susan Axelrod.
1: It's no wonder that you started CURE, but you are the mother of three children. You have a special needs child. Your husband is traveling a ton. This is no small feat in the midst of all of this. Where did where did it where was it born you from? You know,
2: it it was born from the desperation that we all feel. Those of us whose kids have not responded to medications and whose mm-hmm. lives are being just, you know, destroyed if not lost. Um, and it came from slowly again talking about my age and how long ago this was, but slowly meeting other moms. Yeah, the power of moms. <clears throat> um, one of the physicians that was on our board when we first started used to say, there's nothing like an angry mom. And I used to say, we're not angry, we are desperate. Yeah. There's, I, to me, there's a difference. There's a big I was difference, this, I you agree. Know, and agree. And I started to meet these other moms and we started to do some fundraising to for support groups and things like that. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then really started talking um, and learning then I, I thought Lauren was the only one out there who didn't respond to medications. I honestly did. I thought epilepsy's certainly been cured and solved by now, and I just have this fluky child. You know, fast forward to meeting some moms, and I'm like, no, there's a lot of us. Yeah. There's a lot of us, yeah. and it's you know, it's a spectrum. There's some who, um, you know, as as who lose their lives. There's some who can function fairly well. There's some Lauren sort of maybe in the middle there. Mm-hmm. I mean, so the impact is very variable, um, but we're all struggling mm-hmm. and we all want more for our kids.
0: Dr. Charles Marcacelli, Division Chief of Pediatric Neurology and Director of Pediatric Epilepsy at Rush University Medical Center, spoke with us about understanding the complicated nature of epilepsy.
3: We've struggled with defining epilepsy almost from the earliest observations, uh, I think the reason why it's hard for people to understand relates to the wide range of uh, severity, uh, the widely different types of seizures that mm-hmm. patients can experience uh, in, ter- in terms of the uh, causes as well. The fact that epilepsy is associated with so many comorbid conditions.
1: Define comorbid.
3: So these are other disorders or conditions uh, besides the epilepsy, such as attention deficit disorder or anxiety or depression. Okay. Uh, and finally, I think there is variability in terms of the impact of epilepsy on the individual and the family.
1: Let's start with the severity that you mentioned first.
3: I like to use as an example, absence epilepsy, or staring spells. Uh, We like to say that epilepsy is a common phenotype, that means what the condition or disorder looks like, with multiple genotypes, meaning different causes. So I could have within my clinic, three different patients with staring spells. I could have a child who has 20 to 30 staring spells a day lasting 20 seconds each. And this child, uh, hypothetically speaking, uh, developed that epilepsy at about three to four years of age. And so this child probably has childhood absence epilepsy. Contrast this with another child who also has 20 to 30 staring spells per day, brief, but. In contrast to the first kid, this child has uh, generalized tonic-clonic seizures and developed the seizure much later, 9, 10 years of age. In the first case, that child will probably outgrow that epilepsy by the time she's a teenager and has gone through puberty. In the second case, that child has a lifelong condition that she'll have to deal with. Um, a third case is a child who comes with a staring spell, perhaps developed it at nine, the epilepsy at nine years of age, and this child will have longer staring spells uh, and perhaps uh, they can progress to generalized tonic clonic seizures. The first two kids probably have a genetic cause, and the third kid may have a genetic cause but could also have other. Causes such as malformations of cortical development. What the public sees is the staring spells, but each have a different trajectory. The first one will likely outgrow it. The second one will have to deal with this through adulthood. And the third, it may be uncertain. And I think that leads me to the severity uh, question. Um, I've taken care in the past of a, a patient, a young man. You know, I won't give too many details here who, uh, essentially had one seizure per year. Um, he'd have a seizure come in the clinic. I'd make a medication adjustment. I would then, uh, see him in six months. He's doing great. I'm patting myself on the back and then six months later he has another seizure. Make another medication adjustment. Six months later, he's doing well. And I think I'm doing well. Mm-hmm. Six months later, he has another seizure. After about three years, I was beginning to realize I wasn't really helping him much and that his pattern of seizures was once a year. And so I frequently ask the residents or my EG technicians, could you live with or tolerate one one-minute generalized tonic seizure per year? It's not really a fair question, right, because they help me mm-hmm. with my patients who have epilepsy and they put on eg leads and the vast majority of them would say you know Dr. Marchetti I think I could do one seizure a year doesn't seem so severe but what if i said and this young man and let's just say he's 22 for 6 months out of the year in most states he can't drive right now he can't go to school he's going to have a difficult time getting or holding a job And this may affect his relationships. And suddenly one seizure a year isn't so benign. So we have this whole range of of, uh, comorbidities Mm -hmm. that we need to consider. It's not just the seizures, but it's also what impact the seizure has on one's life.
0: We spoke with DePaul University student, Ava Watazinski and her mother, Michelle, about the challenges of being a college student with epilepsy.
4: I started in a community college because I didn't think I was at the health to go to a four-year university. And I also went through two brain surgeries in the process. Yeah, and so, uh, and then I started DePaul. I started with four classes. It was not working out well, so I went down to three and it's been better. You kind of just have to push forward every day, and you end up having to educate um, your professors, your classmates, your student of accommodations, because no one seems to know what epilepsy is.
1: Which is like leads perfectly into my next question: Is you know how? What do you tell your professors, and how do they respond? It differs.
5: We have a, we have a letter
1: that we've been giving to every teacher
5: since, I don't know, freshman year. And we've modified it through, but the same letter, go in, make the modifications, print Mm -hmm. it out, give it to them, trust that they'll actually read it, you know, Mm -hmm. and then...
4: Yeah, and then I'll have one professor's like, well, you were gone because... But for I was gone because of seizures, but they think I just skipped class. And so right. then I have to go to my doctor, to my psychologist, to my student of accommodations to get everyone in to say, like, no, this is not because I skipped classes, it's because it's unsafe for me to be in class. And so that's tough when that happens. Yeah, well, and it's but, creating
1: more stress for you yeah. in an already mm-hmm stressful environment I mean college is hard (laughs) right and so that additional work has to be has to be tough Um, what do you tell your peers your 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 fellow students
4: Uh, I don't usually tell them because it's more of a personal thing and especially if I'm not close to them or they're friends of mine then it's like I'm just gonna do them but I've had seizures during classes and then it makes the professor more aware because I don't have Tonic Clonics unless I'm off of my medications. I have you know all these other ones that may not be apparent. Mm-hmm. But I had a seizure in my math class where my arm convulsed and it actually hit one of the girls, and she was like, "Are you okay?" Like they thought I was probably on like some drug <laughs> that,
1: which is just yeah. so frustrating. But that's yeah. where the thought process goes because people are so uneducated about seizures. Yeah.
5: People fear what they don't understand. You know, if you take the time to learn and understand, mm-hmm. I think then they're more supportive. If you think of it, before epilepsy touched your life, mm-hmm. how much did you know
1: about epilepsy? Nothing. Yeah. I knew. I, I knew the, the tonic. The what I saw on Grey's Gr- Anatomy. Exactly. <laughs> you exactly. Know, and, yeah. and,
5: and me too. I didn't know mm-hmm. anything about it. And so I try to remind myself, you know, unless there's a family member or a friend or, you know, that has it, it's They don't understand. Yeah. And so first we try to go gently with education mm-hmm. and hopefully that resolves everything.
0: Dr. John Milichap, attending physician for neurology and epilepsy at Ann and Robert H. Lurie Children's Hospital, discussed the benefits of genetic testing for epilepsy patients and their families.
1: What is the connection between genetics and epilepsy?
6: Sure. So. Uh, we know a lot about the causes of epilepsy, and on the same, in the same breath I'll say we know very little. So uh, we know of you know hundreds of genes that are related to epilepsy, and having a, a variation in the genetic code for those spe- uh, specific genes alters the function of the machinery in the body that that gene codes for. So if there's a variation in that piece of machinery, in that channel, Uh, then the balance can be off. So where you have more electricity in that brain cell and more electricity then leads to seizures. So that's just one example. There can be other genes that are related to the actual structure of the brain. So uh, they can lead to actual malformations of the brain that we can see on a picture like in an MRI.
1: So talking about variants in the genetic code. You know, not all epilepsies are necessarily inherited. You get your your test results back and they're talking about this variant or that variant. What causes those variants if it's not hereditary?
6: Sure. This is one of the the first things that I talk to parents about when I'm uh, leading into talking about doing genetic testing or uh, recommending genetic testing is that most of uh, the you know, early onset uh, childhood epilepsies are actually uh, new in the child and not from the parents. So, um, you know, sort of back to basic biology, after the egg and the sperm come together, uh, then it forms the, the child. And the, the DNA has to be copied uh, every time the cell splits. And uh, in a normal, in, in everybody, you, me, uh, every time that that's copied, there's going to be little mistakes, um, little changes to the DNA. And sometimes those changes don't make any difference whatsoever, and uh, we just go on uh, being ourselves. And then sometimes early on, uh, one little change will be then uh, important, it will change the function of, of that one gene, of that one piece of machinery that it can cause epilepsy, and be in all subsequent cells in the body.
1: What are the tests that are available? What are the tests that you order as a clinician? And you know, what are you looking for in those tests?
6: Sure. I got into neurology about 11 years ago, and at that point, genetic testing was not uh, used in, as a first-line uh, test whatsoever. Uh, things have changed to the point where uh, almost every patient that I see today, uh, once I've established the diagnosis of epilepsy, taken a history and looked at the EEG, the MRI, my examination. Uh, And I haven't determined a cause uh, of the epilepsy. I'll talk to parents about the availability of genetic tests. Uh, And in many cases, the first test uh, would be a focused test that would look at genes we know to be associated with epilepsy. Uh, And this test is called the Epilepsy Gene Panel, Mm -hmm. and it has a high sensitivity for those specific genes that we know Uh, to be related to epilepsy, so maybe 100 or 200 genes uh, that uh, have a strong association with epilepsy are included on the panel, and once we've done this test, we know that there's not a change in those genes because it looks at it with such depth and and accuracy. Uh, And if that's unrevealing, uh, we can go to the next step, which often involves the parents even more, where will take uh, the child's blood and then also the, the blood of the parents and look at all of the, uh, the portions of the, the DNA that make uh, machinery, make, it, make the body. That's called whole exome sequencing. Okay. Uh, and the reason we take the parents' blood is because, as I said, we all have little variations uh, that don't change anything in our bodies or, or have any... Uh, sig- significance, mm-hmm. uh, and so we kind of subtract uh, any of those inherited variations uh, from the child. So
1: right. So if you see the variant in the parent, and then you're also seeing the variant in the child, but the parent is symptom free, then that's probably not right your culprit. Yeah.
6: So the genetic testing company has uh, you know a huge uh, computer that you know does a lot of this initial sifting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and another thing that I'll constantly be reminding uh, other doctors and, and trainees and parents is that the genetic testing that, that we do is not a static uh, test. So if you had an MRI last week and the radiologist read it and the neurologist looked at it, that happened. It's, it's, that is what the MRI shows. Uh, but if you had a genetic test last month or six months ago or a year ago, that test is not static. We're always learning new things. The the variations that were meaningless or the genes that were meaningless to epilepsy a year ago may today be the cause for your child's epilepsy.
0: Dr. Takeesha Hurd, Division Head of Pediatric Neurology and Epilepsy at the North Shore Neurological Institute, explained how the vagal nerve stimulator, commonly known as VNS, can provide seizure relief for some epilepsy patients.
1: So you're here to talk to us today about um vagal nerve stimulators, the VNS therapy, um, as a treatment for seizures. Um, can you explain the device to us and, and how it works?
7: So the vagal nerve stimulator happens to be a non-invasive um, sort of procedure that can be done as an outpatient. It's a non-open um, brain surgery. It happens to have a coil that sort of wraps around the vagus nerve, um, and they have a generator that they sort of place on the left side, in the, like, maybe a couple of inches below the clavicle.
1: Okay. And so the device goes um, just underneath the skin, and then there are wires that come up and connect to the, the vagus nerve. nerve, which
7: happens to be in the neck.
1: Yes. Okay. And why does it work?
7: So it ends up um, t- targeting the vagus nerves. The vagus nerves then sort of connects to the brain and sort of sends um, amounts of energy that happens to be treatment amounts of energy to sort of combat the seizure, which is an additional aberrant amount of energy to sort of stop the seizures. And how
1: does it know when to work?
7: (laughs) And so it has great configurations um, in which it sort of has a time frame at which it comes on and then it has a time frame at which it gives the amount of energy. Um, So it can be, you know, 30 seconds, it could be up to a minute. Um, And then we go up on the amount of energy in milliamps until we get to a therapeutic amount. Therapeutic is usually about 1.5 milliamps. And then that's whenever we start to notice that as it cycles every five minutes, that you'll start to notice that the seizure frequency will start to go down. Ah, I see. So it
1: is, um, it is triggering the vagus nerve at you know at whatever every five minutes or I'm sure whatever you set that mm-hmm. to be at. Yep. Now, is it the kind of thing where if someone feels a seizure coming on
7: that they can? they can trigger it to try and stop the seizure? Great question. So they have a, a device, it's called a magnet. It looks very similar to an Apple Watch. So it's a large device that um, that you can put on like an Apple Watch or you can wear it around your neck. Okay. Um, and you can trigger it by um, swiping it. So I usually will say, you know, put a W across the, the actual stimulator that activates it, sending an extra jolt of energy that's usually about 0.5 milliamps larger than the normal uh, routine amount.
1: Okay, and then, how in the world did they figure out that this worked? Do you have any idea?
7: No, not really, but we definitely noticed that um, the vagus nerve is one of the cranial nerves. Okay. Um, and so this is one of the ones that happens to come you know, out of the brain and we have easy access to. So is there a way in which we can sort of get to the brain without it actually being a um, open brain surgery? How is the VNS powered? So it has a battery. The battery life can last anywhere from five to 10 years. Usually about seven to eight years is usually the battery life for most. Obviously, it could be shorter if we're sort of are doing the um, the times in which the cycling happens much more frequently than five minutes um, and can last up to 10 years.
1: And so what happens when the battery runs out? Because this is under your skin. It's not like, you know, the, the remote control where you can just pop new batteries in. It's yeah. a little more invasive.
7: Well, not so much. So um, there is going to be, you know, the vagal nerve stimulator generator is going to be under the skin. And so they make a small incision where it's at. It's sort of placed in a pocket. They remove the um, generator from out of that pocket and slide in a new generator. So again, it's a daytime procedure. So it's not anything you have to be in the hospital for. You get it done, you put in a
0: new battery, then you get to go home. Susan Axelrod concluded her conversation with us by discussing her hopes for the future of cure and the need for investment in more research.
1: Where do you want to see cure go? Where do you want to see the epilepsy community push forward? Where do you want us to be 20 years from now?
2: I think that we are on the cusp, you know, maybe another five to 10 years of being able, you know, as we know, epilepsy is many, many diseases. Yes. So we can't say we're going to cure it all, but let's start tackling them. Mm -hmm. And and that's what I'd like to see happening. And that's, you know, one of the reasons we've sort of approached infantile spasms or SUDAP is let's zero in on this, or prevention of epilepsy after head injury. Mm-hmm. This is a known risk factor. This is, these are known things. Let's get smart here and right. sort of figure out how we can tackle this. Break it into stop pieces. Stop it before it happens. It. right.
1: Exactly. Or know exactly what treatment is going to work for that specific
2: exactly. epilepsy. Exactly, exactly. Um, more funds are desperately needed. Um, and I don't want anybody to think <laughs> that that's not the case. Um, however, I do want to make sure that it's um, focused. I mean, I think our impact has been really significant. And there are other people and hopefully pharmaceutical companies, et cetera, that will be interested in development of therapies. But if we can lay the groundwork for, mm-hmm. for them and be really smart about what we're doing, Um, And I just, I just want to get to the point on, on my way over here this morning, um, or actually before I left this morning to come here, I opened up my email and there was um, another email from somebody asking baby just newly diagnosed. And as it was hard for me to walk over and, and see you in Adelaide that very first time, I just, my heart breaks, you know, it's an infant. It just shouldn't be happening. So I want to see that number greatly diminished.
0: Cure is the leading non-governmental funder of epilepsy research. Since its creation in 1998, Cure has raised more than $60 million to fund over 230 projects in 15 countries. Please consider supporting Cure's mission to end epilepsy by making a donation today at cureepilepsy.org forward slash donate. Thank you. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CURE. The information contained herein is provided for general information only and does not offer medical advice or recommendations. Individuals should not rely on this information as a substitute for consultations with qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with individual medical conditions and needs. CURE strongly recommends that care and treatment decisions related to epilepsy and any other medical condition be made in consultation with a patient's physician or other qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with the individual's specific health situation.